reading the Bible passage today, which is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Feel free to follow along on your sheet, or the screen, or just by listening. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm really tempted to preach sitting. That would be uh, <laughs> awesome. Um, I won't. I'll spare us all. All right. I'm going to mess with this for a second. Looks like I can stand up straight again. Okay. <laughs> hey. Uh, I'm Sid Druin. Welcome. This is Reform University Fellowship. Um, how are we doing? You can answer that question. <laughs> There we go, good. We got a couple people. Um, I'm really glad to be here. I know, what is this, week five? We feeling okay overall? Um, again, those who don't know me, this is a misspelling of my name, but my, <laughs> I am Sid Druid. I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF. Uh, we exist to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are, and however you are, and we really mean that. Uh, we mean that in a lot of senses of the word. We want RUF to be a place that isn't for one kind of person. We want RUF to be a place for every kind of person. And we, we want this to be a place of welcome and a place where you can feel at home. Um, and we want you to feel like that no matter what personal background you're from and no matter uh, what scene on campus that you call your own. And so we also even mean that spiritually. Some of you are not so sure where you land spiritually, and we're really glad you're here too. Whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or again, something in between or none of the above, we're really glad to have you, and we hope you feel uh, welcomed and at home. And so again, that's all to say thanks for coming, especially if you're new to REF, welcome. And also, I'd love to meet you if I don't know you, and I'm sure Maddie, uh, where's Maddie? And Eric in the back would love to meet you too. They're the interns with RUF as well. And there's plenty of students also that would love to meet you. So don't be overwhelmed. Okay, 
So this semester in large group, we're doing a series, uh, we're doing a, a topic, and the topic is relationships, pretty broad. Uh, so I'm going to help define what I mean by that, and again, it's going to feel still pretty broad. But what does Jesus have to do with our relationships? What does Jesus have to do with our friendships? What does he have to do with our families? What does he have to do with our dating? What does Jesus have to do with our sex? And what does Jesus have to do with our singleness and even the church? Uh, we're discussing relationships because they matter a great deal to us. Um, and I feel like I don't really have to prove that case out, but I'll give you the words of a Christian counselor named Larry Crabb. He says relationships help us to discover what's wrong with us, and at the same time, relationships release what's right in us. They help us to discover what's wrong in us and also release what's right in us. Um, so they're very important. And we're in the fourth and final week of looking at relationships in a big picture way. Do you hear that? The final week. I know I've just teased you the whole time with kind of more specific looks, but I really do think it's valuable to take a step back and look at a big picture point or perspective, a wide frame macro viewpoint. And I'm calling that the foundation story of relationships. Next week, we're gonna get down into the more nitty gritty. We're gonna explore different contexts of community. Uh, we'll start looking at families and friendships and dating and sex and singleness and marriage and the church. But uh, we're gonna continue for one more week on sort of a broader perspective. I think it'll help us as we go forward in the semester. So let's recap. Three weeks ago, we looked at the beginning and uh, how our relationships were created innocent and good in chapters one and two of Genesis. And then two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis three and we saw how our relationships fell, how they fell from being all good to a lot of bad. We looked at the way that our relationships fell from purely innocent to oftentimes destructive. And then just last week, we turned to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and we considered one aspect of God's cure, one aspect of what God calls redemption. That literally means his ransom, the way he ransoms our relationships, how he cures our relational hurts and our disconnection. And he does that through confession and repentance. We talked about those words. We defined those words. You can check that out. We actually do have a podcast if you ever want to go back and look at it. I know. You would, with, the, with the way I handle this mic stand, you'd have no, or this, uh, whatever this is, the music stand, you would think that I didn't have a podcast. But here we are. Um, so tonight, we're going to examine the other piece of God's solution uh, for our relationships, which is forgiveness. We're going to look at forgiveness tonight. If confession and repentance are the motion that draws messy, fearful people uh, together... So if confession and repentance are the motion that draws messy and pe fearful people together, that means like confession and repentance look like owning the way we sometimes hurt other people. If confession and repentance are that motion, then I'm going to argue that forgiveness is the glue that holds messy and fearful people together. <clears throat> forgiveness is owning the way that other people sometimes hurt us. And it's the glue that holds us together. But before we look more at forgiveness from chapter 18 of Matthew's narrative of the life of Jesus, I'd love to pray. So would you pray with me and for me as we start and for our time together. Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to study your word, to take an hour out of um, the evening and the middle of the week um, and sit with you. Um, I pray that you'd meet us where we are. I know a lot of us are in a lot of different spaces. I, for one, feel like in a different space every five minutes. And I'm sure a lot of students here feel that way, and I pray that you'd meet them. That Jesus, in your kindness and your tenderness, that you would draw near. That through your words, 
uh, you would teach us about ourselves and about you, and that you would be high and lifted up, and in the, the eyes of our hearts you'd be more believable and more beautiful, and that you wouldn't let us leave this room the same. No matter where we are with you, I pray that we'd encounter you, even in this time together, even in this passage. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So when I was little, uh, my sister and I used to watch a VHS tape. I know, I'm old. We'll just get over it. Uh, and there are three Dr. Seuss cartoons on this VHS tape. That's an artifact. Um, we watched these three Dr. Seuss stories over and over and over again to the point where the magnetic, the magnetic tape of the VHS kind of caused a streak across the television screen. So we could barely see the heads of some of the different pictures. Um, and one of these stories was about two Zaxes. Okay. A north-going Zax and a south-going Zax who met in the prairie of Prax. Um, as you can imagine, that's why it's called Dr. Seuss, because of that rhyme scheme. So anyway, uh, <laughs> in the story, these two Zaxes actually run physically into each other, and each refuses to get out of the other's way. The other's way. They refuse to move to the east or to the west, and so they kind of remain locked right in front of each other, staring each other down. And there's this time photography lap, time lapse photography moment in the cartoon. And these two furry bear-like people um, are pictured arms crossed, scowling at each other as they stand across from each other. And the world around them is changing rapidly. Um, it goes from an empty prairie to the beginning of a town to a bustling city. And eventually there's this giant highway overpass that's built around and over them and they're still standing there with their arms crossed scowling at each other. My childhood said conclusion, that's really sad. That's really sad. This sad story about two Zaxes refusing to yield the right of way is a helpful picture for our relationships. Don't get me wrong, most of us don't hold grudges when someone goes on the wrong side of the aisle at Harris Teeter. Most of us are not fuming about someone going down the the, the right, head, right side of the staircase, or their, my, our, left, our right side of the staircase, their left when they're going down to comments. We don't go, oh my gosh, it's over, and we leave comments. Okay, we don't do that. Most of us simply move out of the way, even if we're going on the right side, because we were going on the right side. Anyway, all of us, if we're honest, have these frustrations that hinder our relationships, though. Some of these frustrations are small, maybe Zach's-like. Some of these frustrations look like a person we clearly know. We've met them face-to-face more than a few times. Never says hello back when we see them on campus. We wave, and they just look straight through us. <laughs> Happens. <laughs> okay, sorry to call people out. if that is, um, We're just waving to be nice, but then we just feel like we don't even exist. Or that person... Um, becomes more and more distance to us, that friend, because we're doing all of the work. She never texts me. He never initiates to hang out. I do all the listening. They do all the talking. And so we grow apart. And some of these frustrations with friends and near friends and family members are huge. Someone has gotten loud and angry and even violent, and they never really apologized or never really owned it. Or someone used you. Someone used you as a confessor or for sexual comfort, and you thought that he liked you, but then he just dropped you. Or she just moved on to the next cooler, newer person 
that, they admit that she met. And maybe we've tried to ignore these feelings and tell the world we're over it, but maybe we just aren't over it. That hurt, small or big, has gotten irritated and is festering over time, and now it throbs a little or a lot. The throbbing makes our other relationships feel more jaded or all too sensitive, right? That person consciously and unconsciously makes us change our path we go across campus because we want to avoid them. We avoid the places that we used to hang out together. Um, Whether we go home at break or not is changed by that person. They make us feel sick inside, sick with anger or inadequacy. He or she is stuck on repeat in the downtime in our minds. So what do we do with these feelings? What do we do with these persons and these situations in our life? Do we strike back at them? Fight fire with fire, hurt with hurt, names with still more name-calling? Or, in the words of Anne Lamott, is retaliation like you drinking rat poison and expecting the rat to die? Is retaliation like you drinking rat poison and expecting the rat to die? Our passage tonight, the parable of the unmerciful servant, is what it's called in Matthew 18, offers like a better way forward, a more endearing and more... Uh, enduring and more healing solution. It suggests that forgiveness is the cure. Saying and meaning, I forgive you, and moving out of that posture will help our relationships. And I'm conscious that whether you follow Jesus or you're not really sure what you make of Jesus tonight, forgiveness can oftentimes feel easier to say than to do, right? I mean, after all, Dr. C.S. Lewis said just as much, right? Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. (laughs) Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And this is all the more reason to study our passage tonight. Here we see Peter voice a real and very raw situation, and Jesus give a wonderful tutorial on how forgiveness actually works. Jesus explains that how forgiveness is the glue that both heals and empowers our relationships for the better. So to put all of this in a, a sentence, Matthew 18, verses 25, 21 through 35, tell us, for our relationships to have healing and endurance, for our relationships to have healing and endurance, we need to receive God's forgiveness and then give that forgiveness to others. For our relationships to have healing and endurance, we need to receive God's forgiveness and then we need to give that forgiveness to other people. And we see how forgiveness often works to restore our relationships in the narrative flow of, let's be honest, a strange but also compelling story. If you kind of have new eyes to see this and hear this, if you grew up in the church, it's a very strange story. In Matthew chapter 18, we learn three things, which of course are on your handout uh, with verses. First, verses 21 through 22, we, we learn why we need forgiveness, why we need forgiveness. Verses 23 through 27, we learn how God gives forgiveness. How does God give forgiveness? And third, verses 28 through 35, we learn that God calls us to give forgiveness. Let's look at the story in order, and we're going to begin with verses 21 and 22. I know it's a surprise, and why we need forgiveness. Here's what I like so much about the Bible. I just love that it's so real. Take Peter, for example. Can we just talk about Peter for a second? (laughs) Peter is a real person, 
like all of us here. And he says what's on his mind, and thankfully he also says what's on our minds. Like many but not all of us, Peter calls himself a follower of Jesus. He follows Jesus, physically, literally follows Jesus in his life. And Peter heard Jesus speak what's now written in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Those are the verses right before our passage tonight. Jesus was speaking there about what to do when someone does or says something that hurts us. Whether that something was intentional or unintentional, what do we do? In these verses right before our passage, Jesus told Peter, and he tells us, to confront the person with the way he or she harmed us. And if that person acknowledges their fault, we can reconnect. We can reconcile. But Peter, like many of us, read right between the lines of what Jesus said and applied what Jesus said to his own relationships. Peter mentally visualized real-life flesh-and-blood relationships, people, family, friends, fellow followers of Jesus. And he thought about real life, the ongoing ways that he was dealing with hurt, even among these 12 followers of Jesus. Then Peter did the mental math, right? He traced out what reconciliation would require on his end. Jesus was asking him to glue these relationships back together with forgiveness. These family ties, these friendships wouldn't be brand new again, but forgiveness is required to make his and our relationships whole again. So they wouldn't be brand new again, but they'd be made whole again. So all of this thinking, which is a lot of thinking going on in these verses, leads Peter in verse 21 to ask a question. Jesus, how many times do I have to keep gluing these broken relationships with hard people back together again? And really, Peter has asked our question if we're doing the mental math, right? And we're reading between the lines and we're thinking about and applying what Jesus is saying to our real life flesh and blood relationships. And we are asking the same thing. How many times do I have to forgive someone if, you know, when he ignores me or hurts me? Or how about when she says mean things to my face and behind my back? How many times do I have to deal with that and still call that person a friend? or brother, or sister. And Peter gave his own overachieving Davidson College Wildcat answer. And it came in the form of a question, like every good answer in a class. Like, Dr. So-and-so, don't you mean the comment that's the question? Okay, seven times? Question mark? Exclamation point? Okay, that's four more times. That's more than double what the rabbi teachers of the day said that you had to forgive. The rabbis of the day and, and Peter's time said you have to forgive three times. So Peter thinks he's killing the game. <laughs> he's acing the test, right? But it also gives this out. It gives an end to dealing with hard people on exactly the eighth hurt. They're dead to me. Okay? What's Jesus' answer in verse 22? How many times do we forgive? Seven times 70. Okay, a couple different ways to do the math here. <laughs> Okay, this isn't a literal number, P.S. Okay, it's, he's not saying you have to forgive 77 times or 490 times, and then the relationship being called done and over with on the 78th time someone offends against you, or the 491st time someone offends against you. 
Okay, Jesus is using two perfect numbers in the Bible to make a really big point. That we're to forgive someone any time that they admit wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness. And even when they don't admit wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness. As the Lord prayer implies, you're starting to do the math. Forgiveness is as regular, as daily, as our daily bread. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to sweat out the implications of his clever math. In verse 23, Jesus clarifies his answer to Peter's question by telling this compelling story. Jesus' parable about a king and his servants, it wrestles with our false ideas about forgiveness. And its narrated order gives us a little hint. It tells us something profound. The order is this, to understand and practice forgiveness on a horizontal human level, we've got to start with the divine vertical level. To understand and practice horizontal human forgiveness, we've got to start with the vertical and, and, and divine forgiveness. And that, of course, conveniently, leads to my second point, right? How God gives forgiveness. And looking at verses 23 through 27. In those verses, 23 through 27, we see a king, God, who settles accounts with his servants, people like you and me and Peter. And God summons that one servant, again, imagine yourself in that situation, to deal with a, a debt of 10,000 talents. I'm going to just take a time out right there. Okay, What the heck's going on? I'm going to stop at verse 24 just for a second. We're going to pause. Do you realize how much the servant owes the king? I've done some rough math. And 10,000 talents equals roughly $5 billion. $5 billion. Okay. I carried the one in all the currencies, and here we are. $5 billion. That is, just so you can get an idea of this number, that's five with nine zeros before you hit the decimal point. Before you actually get to the sense part of the number. Five and nine zeros. So in verse 26, the servant says, I got this. I'm going to pay you back. And the king just looks at him like, that is a joke. You have $5 billion in your pocket? Okay, so look, even if the servant sold himself and, and his whole family into slavery, he would only get the equivalent of 10 talents. His life and his family's life is only worth one one-thousandth of the debt he owes. Crazy. Second, second kind of observation question, do you realize what the servant owes the king? If, as the parable suggests, that Peter, you and I are the servant before God, what's the nature of the debt? Debt is a biblical way of describing our sin before God and others. And before you get hung up on that word, sin is the, is the word that Jesus uses for the way that we intentionally and unintentionally hurt God, ourselves, others, and even the world. So this parable and the rest of the Bible make it clear that sin is costly. Sin is a cost that creates a social, emotional, and moral debt. The reason our relationships oftentimes feel so heavy, that we think about them and it feels sluggish, is that because we're bearing this hefty debt of various harm-inducing sins. The harm that I inflict on another or on God or both runs up a spiritual bill that somebody's got to pay through forgiveness. And that leads me to an illustration, a story. I have permission. It's a former RUF student from New Mexico State. Okay, her name is Chrissy, and she told me this incredible story of her first date on Valentine's Day. That's bold. 
Got to give the guy credit. Okay. So it's a few years ago now. The guy decides to be classy and invites Chrissy on Valentine's Day to the best sushi place in town, Las Cruces, New Mexico. Kind of landlocked, so it's not saying very much. But anyway. Um, Aqua Reef is the name of the place. Aqua Reef, which is a great name. Um, and so it's a smaller, more intimate version of Sabi, basically. So you can get the mental picture here for a second, okay? So Chrissy and this guy are seated at the table. And they begin to do the alternation of awkward gestures that is the first date, looking at the menu, kind of tinkling the, the ice in the glass, furiously sipping, <laughs> asking big general questions that really have easy answers, and then pausing awkwardly to sip more water. You know the drill. Anyway, this is what you do on a first date, especially on Valentine's Day. The stakes are high. Okay. As Chrissy and her date are enduring the pre-order get-to-know-you moment that is that time, just then, suddenly, there's this loud, violent crash, less than 10 feet from their table. And I, this is a true story. A car drove through the outside wall on a first day on Valentine's Day through Aqua Reef, 10 feet away from their table. So I just want you to picture this for a second. There, amid the soft classical music, the elegantly dressed servers, the ornate sushi and sashimi presentations. There was a grill, a hood, and two front tires of a car in the dining room. This is true. And then the action continues. The driver flings open the door, and he runs out, and he's yelling loudly, I couldn't stop, I just couldn't stop, which I love that line. This feels like it's to justify the car. I thought you were breaking. Anyway, um, now the owner has a few options at this moment, right? The owner of Aqua Reef has a few options, right? He can demand that the driver pay him for the damages to his restaurant's wall, or the Aqua Reef owner could offer to pay for the wall replacement himself completely. Or maybe the driver and the owner can work something out, usually through insurance, where they should pay a percentage of each of the repair costs. So they each kind of burden the, pre- the repair costs. Look, I don't really actually know how the real life scenario, I wasn't in the finances of Aqua Reef at the moment, but I do know one thing. I know that somebody had to pay for it. Someone had to pay for it. Like, right, maybe it was the owner, maybe it was the driver, maybe it was both, but somebody actually had to pay for the damages. The owner and the driver and Chrissy and her date could not pretend like the wall had just been there. Like, couldn't, like, just have, like, an, a patio all of a sudden, okay? <laughs> the wall had been knocked down. Do you see where I'm going? Sin is like the offense of driving through Aqua Reef's wall. Sin has got to be paid for. Its broken effects for a relationship are real, not imagined. And someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay for them. Someone's got to emotionally, socially, and morally rebuild the relationship. God's forgiveness in verse 27 is the owner offering to pay for the aqua reef wall himself. He did nothing wrong. God has treated us blamelessly. He's perfectly loved us. And yet we have so often, I have so often silently stiff-armed and slandered him and others. My grill, the hood of my car, the two front tires, have driven straight through God's invitations to treasure him. And they have pu- I have clearly put 
others' interests below my own. Yet verse 27 tells us out of pity, out of compassion for us, the innocent party, the hurt one, cancels the debt. God absorbs the outrageous $5 billion cost of our offenses. He takes on all the past, present, and future hurts we did, do, and will commit. But how? How has God absorbed the moral, emotional, and spiritual cost of all that sin? He's done it through his suffering. He suffered on the cross and the person of Jesus on behalf of his people. In the words of theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, all real forgiveness involves some form of suffering because anyone who forgives must bear the other's sins. Anyone who forgives must bear the other, other sins. There's a very real cost associated with forgiveness. And if you believe in Jesus, God has paid it for you by his agony and his blood on a cross 2,000 years ago. And here's the deal. You want to do nothing. He does everything. We're not honing up that bill. We couldn't pay it. $5 billion. But this is so hard to accept at a place like Davidson College. It's so hard. This is because we so often confuse our doing and our being. We think that our being, who we are, right, is a product of our doing, what we do or what we earn. We think who we are is what we do. We confuse the two all the time. Okay, this is especially true for forgiveness. We have a problem with our being, who we are. We have a problem with our relationships, right? And we think that we can fix this. We can fix it with our doing. We can fix us, and we can fix ourselves, we can fix the other party, we can fix the relationship. And all we gotta do is just work harder, because that works in the rest of our life. And so all we do is work harder, just more interior psychological work, redoubled commitment to community activism, or an attempt to outdo good any of the ways that we did someone wrong. But look, I love counseling. I love community activism. I appreciate kindness. <laughs> really and truly, they are good things. But the point of this passage is you cannot forgive yourself. We cannot change anyone else. Only God can do those things. Only God can pay the impossible moral, emotional, and social debt. Right? You and I cannot pay $5 billion of cost, no matter how long and how hard we try. And to paraphrase a friend, Stacy Croft, until we understand the deep debt that we have, until we understand that deep debt, we won't understand how deeply God loves us as we are. Until we understand the depth of our debt, we will not understand the depth of his love for us as we are. Until you open up yourself and Jesus sits with you in the deepest garbage of your life. And he tells you he has paid for even that. It will be so hard to know how deeply God loves you. He loves you. He loves me. Doing nothing. Nothing. That's what forgiveness is. This misunderstanding of God's forgiveness is at the root of why human forgiveness is so hard. We misunderstand God's forgiveness, so it makes human forgiveness so difficult. And we see our struggle to forgive play out in verses 28 through 35 in our third point about forgiveness. 
Again, our passage connects, it corresponds so truthfully to our real lives, doesn't it? I love this. Notice in verses 28 through 30, the just recently forgiven servant refuses to forgive a lesser debt. It's a debt of 100 talents. That's like $10,000 worth of someone else's damage. That's a lot. But it's not $5 billion, but it's a lot. Okay? Instead of choosing not to hurt the other person or choosing to bear the cost, the servant makes the other person pay. He retaliates and he makes him suffer in verses 28 through 30. But why? Why do I, why do you fail to forgive others when so many of us here believe that we've been forgiven by God? Why is that so difficult to make that jump? I've got two reasons. Ready? Two reasons. First, we sometimes won't forgive because we don't understand the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness is two things simultaneously. It is a one-time act, and it is a process. Forgiveness is a one-time act and a process. Let's start with the one-time act, okay? Forgiveness is certainly a one-time declaration. Most of us live with lots of social guilt in life, and forgiveness comes out like a guilty twinge. Forgive me, I'm sorry. Okay, or you're forgiven, leave me alone. Okay, like, we forgive automatically because we think we have to. I'm Christian, forgive. Or we do this whole thing where we'd rather just get it over with. Yeah, 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 you're forgiven, right? We hold our nose and we get it over with. Instead, we often need to take some time before we declare our forgiveness of someone. Count the cost of that comment against you. Consider the suffering it's going to take to bear that comment without retaliation. So when someone hurts you, take the time to truly understand what exactly happened, how you're feeling, and then earnestly forgive out of love for that person, not out of a guilt twinge. Okay? Also, the guilt behind the act of forgiveness can make us misunderstand the nature of forgiveness, right? Jesus is not asking us to open ourselves up to repeated abuse. Love oftentimes looks like confrontation. Love oftentimes looks like handing people over to consequences that will help them. You see, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation requires the other person to confess and repent of their specific ways that they hurt you. They've got to own their stuff. If the person will not own up to their sins with you and your community, then we've got some kind of helpful words in the passage before us, verses 15 through 19 of Matthew 18. They tell us to let that person go. They tell us to treat that person with less trust than he used to treat them. But our parable tonight says we are still called to forgive them out of love before God in prayer and hopefully also in a safe conversation with the offending person. So just what this forgiveness before God looks like is the process part of forgiveness. So it's a one-time declaration and a process. You see, forgiveness is both of those things at the same time. Sadly, if you've heard much about forgiveness from a Christian perspective or otherwise, you've heard this really classic cliche. Forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. But the process of how forgiveness works is the opposite of that cliche. You actually see the Bible, when the Bible says God will remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31, it doesn't mean that God gets amnesia, like he completely forgets. Oh my goodness, the divine mental capacity breaks down, right? That's not what's going on. It means that God chooses not to bring the sins to mind when he brings me to mind. 
Okay? And by the way, he's always bringing us to mind, always and forever. He's not, she's choosing not to bring the wrongs with us. So forgiveness is the process of refusing to bring another person's wrongs to mind when we think of them, when we bring that person's to mind, okay? But what does this often internal process actually look like in real life? I'd like to get specific, is that okay? (laughs) This is gonna be really specific. I want you to imagine you've told someone a dark, deep, personal secret. Okay, something about maybe an abuse that took place or an addiction you struggle with. And that person pledged, said, oh, that is so sacred, I'm not gonna say anything to anybody. And then pretty soon, you see a Snapchat with all your closest friends on it, and that, your thing is revealed. And like very, they think they're being clever, but it's obvious. Or all of a sudden you show up at Commons and the whole, everyone's talking about your sin, or talking about the way you've been sinned against. The abuse or the addiction, whatever it is, okay? So here's the thing. If you forgive this person, the process looks like this. If you forgive this person, you're going to make a commitment not to throw him or her that betrayal back into their face. Even if she breaks your confidence again later. Okay, so you're making a commitment not to throw it back in their face. If you forgive this person, you're making a commitment not to place that betrayal before other people's faces and hearing. Okay, you're choosing not to call that person a gossip to all of your mutual friends even though they did gossip. If you forgive that person, you're making a commitment not to dwell on that betrayal in your own mind. You won't use that secret sharing moment to justify your future fear of intimacy, for instance. So even with the right motives, the process of refusing to bring a person's wrongs to mind can be long and hard and painful and full of personal failures. And we actually need to rely on Jesus' forgiveness of our attempts to forgive. We need Jesus' forgiveness for the ways that we try to forgive. The deeper the wound, the deeper the offense, the more we need forgiveness for the difficult part of forgiveness. And this need for God's forgiveness and our own forgiveness brings us to the second reason that we fail to forgive other people. And this is my final thought, by the way, if you're worried. Okay, All of us here are either struggling to remember or struggling to believe something that is so crucial. God has canceled our $5 billion moral debt once and for all, for all time on the cross. Verse 31 through 35 shows us how easy that is to forget. So easy to forget God's forgiveness in our relationships. We see how quickly and repeatedly we can think of God's lavish forgiveness that we can think, ah, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, the cross was a nice gesture, but it's a bit over the top, Jesus. We can quickly and repeatedly begin to think that our moral debt wasn't really that big of a deal. Was it really $5 billion? Because most of the time it feels like 9000 You know, just below the 10000 mark that someone else just did. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I would never do that. In our hearts, we start to pretend that we never drove through the the wall of Aqua Reef. Just like this servant, many of us fail to empathize with and forgive someone else's debt because we we fail to own just how deep our debt is. Culturally, we're encouraged to think that they're the bad people and we're the good people. But the reality is much, much more complicated than this simple perfectionism. 18th century theologian John Owen 
muddles all of our, our all or nothing conception of everyone, right? He messes with our perfectionism. John Owen famously confessed, the seed of every known sin is in my heart. The seed of every known sin is in my heart. Here's the thing. What does that mean? It's by God's kindness and it alone that we don't do worse things. Think of the worst thing you've ever done or thought. I want you to think of the thing that they would take away your cat card for. You would be kicked off this campus. You would never be allowed back. Okay? I want you to think about the thing that, like, if people knew, they would get placards with, with like, poster board, and they would march around your house and protest your existence. Think about that. Now imagine how much worse that deed would be if you had worse family environment that you grew up in. Think how much worse that would be if you had less genetic impulse control. Maybe, just maybe, they aren't that bad. And maybe, just maybe, I'm not that good after all. Maybe it's just much more complicated than we want to believe. And maybe, I'm going to say this too, maybe, just maybe, I'm not that bad and they're not that good. Those are both very simplistic. Maybe it's a muddled confusion. Meditating on how much worse he can be, Sufjan Stephen writes this, this song, John Wayne Gacy Jr. Okay? It's an oldie at this point. And this song, Stephen sings about John Wayne Gacy Jr., who you probably even know who that is, and that's okay. He's a serial killer who dressed up like a clown, seduced young boys, killed 27 of them, and put them under his house. It's horrific. But listen to what Sufjan Stevens says about his own heart. It's a lyric. He says, and in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. John Wayne Gacy Jr. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Stevens is right. My debt, my debt of sin is far bigger than I think. But please don't stop there. (laughs) Please remember the parable. God's love for us. God's love for us then and there in the secret places of our hearts even. That love is bigger, far bigger than we can imagine. The generous king of everything died naked and he died as an imprisoned debtor out of pity for us. He died to pay our debt all for once and for all, for all time, just so that we could be not at zero, but morally rich. You see, Jesus' forgiveness has made us rich in righteousness. That we're rich enough to absorb $10,000 worth of damages, far more than seven times. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this complex passage. Thank you for a lot to chew on there, and I'm so grateful. I'm grateful that you, your word is so sophisticated, it's so nuanced. I'm thankful for the ways that you think about our lives and the way that you've helped us to think your thoughts after you. I pray that you'd help us to do some of these things. I pray that we'd think about a relationship, and I pray that you'd help us to apply it to that relationship, that we would start the one time in the process of forgiveness. But I also just pray that you would help massage into our hearts the fact that you are this generous, (laughs) that you have done the work, and that that work still counts, and there's nothing that can disqualify it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.